You know, um, there are two kinds of men I've noticed. There are uh, undershirt-wearing men, and there are not undershirt-wearing men. And I've always been an undershirt-wearing man. But today I decided, let's wing it and be a non-undershirt-wearing man. (laughs) Really bad idea. (laughs) I'm nervous as hell. Anyway, at Wellsprings, uh, we're often called and we often call attention to the idea that religion is our response to the fact that we are alive and that we're going to die. But there's another tension that I'd like to draw our attention to today. That we are separate, unique persons and nearly identical, undifferentiated members of the community of Homo sapiens. Our DNA can be used to uniquely identify us to near certainty, at least enough to exonerate and convict people of crimes, to find separated siblings, to identify an umbilical cord transplant donor 25 years after the recipient received the transplant. All this uniqueness and precision rests upon one-tenth of one percent of difference across all human DNA. Yet we cling so tightly to that one-tenth of one percent. We go to war over that difference. That difference can evoke feelings of affection. It can evoke feelings of fear. On that difference, and sometimes less, we define we and me, us, and them. Now, when I was nine, we moved. Our family picked up and moved from one town to another, which meant that I had to leave the comfort of my Catholic school and start going to a public school. Stop walking through the idyllic neighborhood and get bused to this new school. It was there I started to encounter all kinds of different people that I had never met before. Jewish people and Protestants, African-Americans and Asian-Americans. I started to open my awareness to the differences among us. And I'm sure I participated in some of that differentiation, us versus them. When people asked me, who are you? I said, I'm an Italian-American. I never said an American. Over the next few years, these differences really didn't matter all that much, at least not to me. We played together. We learned together. We did all kinds of things. But then in my early teens, I developed a crush on my friend's sister. He and I lived on the same street, actually. We played a lot, played together, spent a lot of time together. Street hockey, stick ball, listened to music, played chess, all the things young boys do. And when I mentioned to him that I had these feelings for his sister, he was like, no, that's unacceptable. After all, he said, we're Jewish and you're not. Now, this struck me, you know, I'm a randy little boy. (laughs) as kind of unreasonable. (laughs) I said, why should these petty differences matter when it comes to the heart? And he says, no, it's not possible. It's a bridge too far. 
a boundary that can't be crossed. He made it clear to me that afternoon where we ended and us began. During our high school years, he and I drifted apart. He became more involved with his friends of shared faith and culture. And I did the same. In fact, our high school kind of reinforced the segregation through its mechanics, right? He was a much better student taking AP courses. I was a little bit more traditional. (laughs) At times since then, I occasionally feel a deep sense of loss. I actually sometimes feel angry about these divisions, this separation, these boundaries. They feel to me arbitrary, kind of like an illness coming upon me without my consent, without reason. But, you know, in the intervening years, I've come to see this impulse to create boundaries as fundamentally human. To define me, the individual, as separate and distinct from the rest of we. To differentiate us from them. This comes to us as naturally as breathing. But to manage this habit of the heart, for me and I think for many of us, is like climbing a mountain, trying to push a boulder, never quite getting to the top and always falling back and having to start over again. The us and them will often prevail over the we. Holding on to me in the midst of we is challenging. And we may feel right now in this particular moment like it's a really bad problem. It's a really new problem. But I assure you it's not. At least I don't believe it is. What I feel is happening in this particular moment is that this tendency, this natural urge is being exploited by many people. Many spiritual traditions speak to this circumstance, this inherent separateness, the urge to be unique and autonomous, which can often feel like a barrier to our equally strong need for connection. We can read the story of Adam and Eve, for example, as fundamentally about our separation from nature. We can hear the words of Cain, I am not my brother's keeper, when God inquired about Abel. To be spoken defensively, for sure, but also, I think, as a point of separation from that most intimate of we's, one's biological family. My favorite, though, and most frustrating story is the one about the Tower of Babel. From Genesis 11, 1 through 9, taking place sometime after Noah. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top reaches to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. Then, there's always a then, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that humankind was building. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people with one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. So now nothing that they intend to do 
will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So Yahweh scattered them from over there, over the whole face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name name was called Babel. And for there, Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I don't know about you, but this story always makes me a little pissed off. I mean, come on, God. We had it in the bag. We were one big us. We had a common language. We could do great things. Nothing was beyond our grasp. What's the message here? Is this some kind of divine punishment, a joke for our hubris or our pride? Are we to be stuck in this us and them, me, we condition? I try to reframe this story when I think about it as a reminder that when we cooperate, instead of compete, very little is beyond us. But we need not look only at the Old Testament to get some perspective on this tension between the urge for me and the equally compelling urge to we. Modern psychologists have spent the past 50 years or so exploring human cognition seeking to understand how we come to know things, how we assess the past and understand the present and forecast the future. We've learned some important things along the way. The first is that we tend to think in categories rather than continuums. We are driven to separate friend and foe, good and bad, stick from snake. It's a matter of survival. Second, We're really quick at sorting these things out, and we're good enough that it keeps us alive. So speed, thinking fast, is our default mode. Third, in our haste, we miss relevant details. We're subject to bias, prone to error. We overlook new information and facts, particularly when they contradict what we already know. And lastly, we don't use information that we have very well to draw conclusions. One example of this is that it's often easier for us to make a conclusion or draw a conclusion about an entire group of people based on meeting one or two. While it's very hard for us to draw a conclusion about a specific individual member of that group based on the averages or the general notion about that group. Let's take a moment here and try a little experiment. This is the risky part. Imagine you're out for a hike, and out of the corner of of your eye, you see this. How many people here saw a snake? Anybody see a stick? A few people. The majority of you saw a snake. Now, it was, in fact, a stick. But it's a point of observation that our thinking fast and our preference for safety over risk leads us to the conclusion that we should be afraid and turn around and move the other way. That's a snake. Safe bet. If it's a stick, no loss. These cognitive habits play out, though, in other kinds of ways in our lives. 
arguments and discussions over immigration, for example. People are easily persuaded that the actions of a few, like violent crime, extends to the entire group. Alternatively, we resist applying the average tendencies of the group that, in fact, there are a low, a low percentage of immigrants commit violent crimes to any one person that we might encounter from that group. And this is one of the ways in which racist ideas quickly spread and become accepted facts. To me, it's a reminder that we're cognitively lazy. That racism is, among other things, lazy thinking. The urge to group ourselves and to protect that group, the us, is deep, deep down inside of us. It's primordial, almost beyond the reach of reason, as we just observed. It touches us in the most intimate ways. It can even push us to violate things that we claim to value. The story of Felicity Hoffman and the Varsity Blues scandal, some of you may be familiar with it. It involves wealthy parents who cheated the college admissions process to help their children get into top schools. It's horrifying to any of us who value meritocracy and opportunity, equality of opportunity. And we hold people like that who use their wealth to advantage their children over others as unsavory, unjust and cheaters. Now, I have no doubt that Felicity Huffman specifically claims to value equality of opportunity and meritocracy. I actually understood and empathized with her when she said, I was just trying to help my daughter succeed. Her drive to protect her family, that narrowest us, likely overwhelmed her commitment to those values and blinded her to the larger we who would also be disadvantaged and denied access to the college seat that her daughter was going to take. I wonder how we might question how property values and property taxes and school districts are used to increase the chances that we, that what we have earned and achieved as parents can be used to advantage, protect, and differentiate our children? Do we see how these rules and institutions have been created to define and maintain an us-them divide? You might recall that the judge who sentenced Felicity Huffman made reference to Kelly Williams Bolar, who also cheated to get her children into a better school district by lying about their address. The address turned out to be that of her grand the daughter's, the children's grandfather. It was about 10 years ago when this happened, and Kelly was given two five-year sentences at the time that were immediately reduced to 10 days imprisonment, the same exact prison sentence pretty much that Felicity Hoffman got. Both Kelly and Felicity received similar amounts of jail time. This strikes me as reasonable, as kind of fair. But that Kelly was trying to help her children who fell on the other side of an arbitrary divide defined by property values and effectively, that effectively reinforce structural inequality and racism is decidedly not fair or just. 
It's another way that the us and them is sustained, keeping those we love safe from harm. How have we here enlarged the circle of we? And how have we tightened that circle of us at Wellsprings? Creating Wellsprings has been and continues to be a bold and ambitious urge to community, an enlarged sense of we. We've developed a set of beliefs and values as necessary boundaries that serve to define us, while hopefully offering an invitation to those not us. But to make this work, we have to be careful. We have to be careful to be a beloved community, a welcoming community, even when it forces us to reevaluate what us is. When we gather as a community, how do we gather? What is the intention of that gathering? How is that intention widening the circle of us rather than closing it down? I'd offer that if more than 40 percent of voters voted for the current president, then some group of people fewer than zero in this congregation also did the same. How have we made room at Wellsprings for them relative to us? Is our commitment to beloved community not unlike Felicity Huffman's commitment to equality of opportunity? Have our own fears at times narrowed that circle of beloved community? What are the ways in which we think fast, in which we tighten and sharpen the boundary between us and some version of them? How can we recognize this when this is happening? Slow down. Think slow. Soften the boundaries. Make them more permeable. Make space for variation in the midst of connection and community. Last week... Ken beautifully offered one pathway to greater communion. Empathy evoked by a common understanding of suffering and pain. Now, for an old-time Catholic like me, of course I got that. It was reminiscent of my religious upbringing for sure. The path to greater communion and a large sense of us is found through the suffering of Jesus. I also believe there are other ways that we can wrestle with and manage and work with this urge to divide and to create and and so create a larger sense of we one conscious step and one conscious breath we say it every sunday a practice of awareness and presence kathleen that pushes us to think slow not fast it pushes us to see the larger context, to extend my heart out into the world, to take another perspective. When we feel that urge to close up, to draw the boundaries around me versus we or us versus them, consider these words. Bring to mind someone with whom you've had a difficult relationship. Perhaps it's someone you don't like to feel sympathy or compassion for. Seeing if it's possible to let go of the feelings of resentment and dislike for this person, reminding yourself to see this person as a whole being deserving of love and kindness. 
seeing if it's possible to extend to this person the words of loving kindness in your mind. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be held in loving kindness. May you feel my love now. May you accept yourself just as you are. May you be happy. May you know the natural joy of being alive. I remember the first time we did the loving kindness meditation in Wellsprings 2.0. And I, at the time, my mind went to Osama bin Laden, actually. Like, can I extend loving kindness out that far? And I recognized the power of this meditation. I want to close with a story that I came across last week. In 1997, Holly Becker, then about 24 years old, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she was treated at the time with all the standard chemo approaches. None of them worked. She was going to die. Near death, she and her doctor attempted a relatively new procedure using umbilical cord blood, which contains special stem cells that can be used to replace all of the blood in her body. The procedure destroys all of her blood cells and replaces them with the donor's blood stem cells. It worked. And it's worked for many others. But what makes this story interesting, actually, is that Holly recently did the ancestry DNA test. And the DNA from her saliva linked Holly to a complete stranger named Dania Davy. Dania, who was also on ancestry and also had done the DNA test, found out she had a daughter. She didn't know about. So the two of them connected trying to sort it all out, and they realized, once they talked through things a little bit, email back and forth, that Holly was the recipient of Dania's son Patrick's umbilical cord blood that saved their life. He's now 25 years old. Holly, Dania, and Patrick recently got together in Chicago, Holly's hometown, And it was that 99.9% overlap in their DNA, in our DNA, that allowed this to work. And it was that 0.1% difference that allowed them to find each other. And so, in the finding of each other and that making of that connection, they began to redefine their own sense of me and we and us and them. Part of Patrick lives on in Holly. Two distinct sets of DNA in one person cooperating and collaborating to keep her alive. There is a separateness that defines and differentiates each individual from the other, and it lives in tension with the urge to commune, the logic that collective action improves our lives more than acting alone. Immanuel Kant identified this paradox somewhat cynically as our unsocial sociability. He went on to say that we seek the attention and approval of others that we cannot stand to be around and we cannot bear to leave. When I I take the long view 
of this vast earthly experiment. I'm kind of optimistic, actually. I kind of agree with Richard Wright in his book, Non-Zero, that biology, evolution, and history describe a trend toward larger and more complex systems of cooperation from the molecular to the social. It has its starts and its stops. It has its setbacks, to be sure. It's often ugly, and it can even be brutal. Today, we may in fact be experiencing one of those setbacks as we feel the urge to disaggregate, as we feel the pull of our individual separateness tugging on our societies, threatening to rend them into smaller and smaller groups of us and them. But I take solace in the observation that humanity knows, even back to the Tower of Babel, we know the benefits of cooperation from the depths of our DNA to the complexity of international trade, that life gets better every time us and them can be organized into a reimagined we. Let's join our hearts in prayer, and I'm going to actually do the loving-kindness meditation. So if you want to get comfortable, close your eyes. We'll do that practice. Bring to mind someone with whom you've had a difficult relationship. Perhaps it's someone you don't feel sympathy or compassion for. Seeing if it's possible to let go of feelings of resentment and dislike for this person. Reminding yourself to see this person as a whole being deserving of love and kindness. As someone who feels pain and anxiety. Seeing if it's possible to extend to this person the words of loving kindness in your mind. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be held in loving kindness. May you feel my love now. May you accept yourself just as you are. May you be happy. May you know the natural joy of being alive.